Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. Uh, so I'm Anushka. Thank you for the nice uh, reading of my introduction, Nicholas. I'm very happy to be virtually back at Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Uh, I was actually supposed to be there in person. Uh, I taught, uh, I was scheduled to teach a meta retreat at IMS uh, this past week with Sharon Salzberg and some other colleagues. And that, of course, was canceled uh, as the retreat center is closed. But it was at the time that I was going to be physically manifesting in Massachusetts that I had agreed to visit your center. It also though, is very nice um, for me when I get to visit CIMC, whether in person or virtually like this, um, because it was in fact my uh, original home Dharma Center. So I was a student at Harvard University uh, a long time ago and uh, was uh, studying religion and Buddhism and Hinduism. And I got interested in actually trying the practice. And I think through one of my classes, actually, we might have visited CIMC. Uh, and then I kind of got into going to talks like this one. I would come to the Wednesday night and coming to classes and things like that. So this was about um, 30 years ago now. And uh, so I'm very appreciative to the center and to my teachers there, uh, particularly Narayan. So it's uh, very meaningful for me to come back. And I was reflecting about this, you know, coming back even virtually to uh, Cambridge. And I lived there for some time after that in Cambridge and Boston. I actually lived all along the red line. Like after I finished at Harvard, I lived in Central Square. Then I lived in Harvard Square, Porter Square, Davis Square, uh, Teal Square up near Tufts. And then after that, I knocked off the red <laughs> Or actually, no, I went to Connecticut first and then went to San Francisco. Um, so I was reflecting about how my practice has changed since that time and even like what was the motivation for my coming to uh, the Dharma. And in the reflections about, you know, why is it that we practice and how do we change our relationship to practice, uh, you know, related to this uh, cultivating the wisdom, uh, I realized like, yeah, there's a way in which we have to renew our relationship to our practice. We have to renew our relationship to anything in our life, really, in order to keep it alive. So some of you might be um, new. This is your first time coming to a Dharma talk. If so, you're very welcome. Uh, but some of you might be some long-time meditators, uh, long-time visitors to the CIMC uh, webpage slash center. Uh, so it's always good, I think, to consider, like, what is my relationship to my practice and to in some ways, like keep alive the meaning of what it is that you are doing, like what it is why you're doing it. So otherwise, I think um, people find different times in their practice that they they get a little bit stale, or there's a way in which the relationship to the practice feels like not alive. Um, and then it's easy to kind of fall off and lose interest and things like that. But if we continue to pay attention to, oh, what is the relationship to the practice? And then uh, it could be like take up some refreshed way of uh, relating to, um, then it can be very helpful for our onward leading uh, path of awakening. 
So uh, I wanted to just go through some different possible ways in which you might relate to your practice. And you could just consider as you hear this, are there any ones that you can relate to uh, from your past uh, experience or are there some that uh, relate now? Uh, also, I'm open if there's some perspectives that are not there because I don't think this is like the comprehensive list. So this is not some like poly list that you need to memorize or anything like that. <laughs> it's meant to uh, just help you to reflect and um, consider your relationship. So, you know, first to, in that framework way, I'd say um, consider like, what is my relationship to anything that is a long time activity or person in my life? So for example, let's say you have a relationship to a child in your life. You know, as the child grows over the years, you have to change your relationship to that child. So when they're a baby, they need help doing everything. You know, babies are very helpless and uh, need help with food and bathroom and getting clothed and protected and everything. And then as the child gets a little older, they learn to do some things themselves. And as an adult, I know this as an auntie, like the child gets very annoyed if you start to try to relate to them like they're a baby. In fact, they often say very specifically, I'm not a baby stop treating like a baby, right? And then as they get to be a teenager, similarly, like oh, they have different needs and different capabilities. And so you have to kind of keep growing with them and keep relating to them and learning, like what is the appropriate relationship to have to this person? Even to a long time uh, spouse or partner, like let's say you married someone uh, when you were 25, and then as the years go on, you get to be 30, and if you stay together, 40, 50, you know, by the time, you're 60, you're not the same person in some ways as when you were 25. And neither is this other person. So you have to learn to relate to them differently, right? Like you have to be with all the changes in energy levels in what's going on for them in their life and what their uh, stage of their career is and what their stage of their relationship to their family is, you know, all of that. Or even uh, for non-human uh, relationships. So like, What's your relationship to exercise? So for me, I played a lot of uh, sports and competitive sports. And even when I was at Harvard, I played uh, like rugby and um, soccer and lacrosse and all this stuff. And, you know, when you're playing intensive college sports, you play two, three hours. As I got older, I started to play a bit less as I got a job. When I moved to San Francisco, I started playing in some adult leagues. But after a while, I found that I kept getting older and there kept being new 21-year-olds to continue to cover and uh, run around and <laughs> try to uh, keep pace with. So then, uh, yeah, after some time, I uh, kind of retired into more uh, swimming and cycling and uh, things like that. Uh, so yeah, we have to like, keep pace with what's our body able to do, what's appropriate, uh, yeah, and maintain some healthy and engaged relationship to that area. So you know, if I had said like, oh, I can't play soccer against 21 year olds, so forget it, I might as well just stop doing anything, then you know, that's not very good for the health. So like that, you know, we have to renew our relationship to our practice. So for many people, uh, the reason that they came to Dharma practice, uh, particularly to meditation, is suffering, dukkha, capital S suffering, capital D dukkha, right? <laughs> like big time. Um, sometimes it was the destruction of a marriage, sometimes it was an illness, uh, sometimes just accumulated stress and strain, uh, worry, and then 
you hear about this meditation thing or you read a book or you meet someone and then like, oh, okay, I'll check this out. Some of you might have come through the doorway of the stress reduction, kind of the MBSR kind of like stress reduction way. And, uh, you know, all of those are uh, very legitimate and long-standing entry points for Dharma practice. Uh, in fact, I think like Dukkha is like the number one entry point for Dharma practice over the 2600 years is really uh, Dukkha, including for the Buddha in some ways, who uh, felt like he didn't understand some things about life and illness and getting old and dying and, you know, cast him on this uh, kind of uh, spiritual quest, you could say. So then you might practice along and, uh, you know, after a while, uh, you might have gone on a retreat, perhaps, um, and maybe on that retreat, uh, you gain some great states of concentration, and beautiful insights and so on. Then you come back to your humdrum life and you start to try to meditate again, sit on your cushion, and it just can feel like taking out the garbage. You know? Like it can feel like not that uh, beatific, like those beautiful states that you had on the retreat, the states of concentration and calm are gone. And now when you sit, all you're doing is reliving your memory of the fight you had with someone at work or uh, remembering that you didn't take out the compost or, you know, any number of like very mundane things. So we might feel like, well, uh, you know, then there's no point in me practicing. But um, actually, as one of my friends say, you know, even if it feels like taking out the garbage, uh, it's good to take out the garbage. So <laughs> that may feel like a mundane reason to practice, but allowing the unwinding of these kinds of uh, unresolved aspects, uh, allowing yourself to connect with the emotions that you suppressed all during the day, uh, to train yourself to be able to be more present in the moment when those things come up the next time is actually a very uh, beneficial uh, way to, to learn and to practice. For the suffering one, I should say also that it's kind of like for some people, like you initially enter through suffering and then that suffering clears up in some way. Like, you get over that breakup or loss of job or you get better from the illness. And so then, you know, sometimes you're left being like, oh, why am I now uh, practicing? So at that point, sometimes some people come to some perspective on uh, meditation as mental fitness. And this is kind of a popular, like, uh, uh, perspective, uh, like parallel to going to a gym, you go to the uh, meditation center, and it's backed up now by all these studies on neuroplasticity and that you can uh, change the way that our neurons are firing and the uh, ones that fire together, wire together, and in that way, like sort of a scientific kind of like mental fitness. I strengthen these certain muscles of wholesome, of mindfulness, of concentration, um, all kinds of good things. So if that's inspiring to you, then that's great. Uh, that can be a worthy perspective to hold. Uh, and in that kind of parallel to the physical discipline also, another angle on that is that you are actually kind of preparing yourself. So in the same way that for some people, the physical training that they do in their life is kind of preparing themselves, being able to meet life better. So meaning like, oh, you run on a treadmill, but then sometimes you actually have to run for a bus or uh, run away to save yourself. And so then the training has actually helped you in your life. 
So my favorite quote uh, regarding this perspective is from uh, Bruce Lee, the uh, Kung Fu master, who says, uh, under duress, we do not rise to the level of our expectation, but we fall to the level of our practice. So under duress, we don't rise to the level of our expectation of like what we think we should be, but we fall to the level of our, our practice. So when you're in some stressful situation, so in his case, he's talking about like someone fighting you, then what comes forth? It's not your imagined self, but the practice that you've done, you know, all the moves that you've done over and over to ingrain them in your way of interacting, in your way of uh, being able to engage, that's what comes forward. So in some way you could say also, uh, with this mental fitness one, we practice and then the extent to which we can remain balanced, for example, uh, with whatever's coming through, uh, allows us to have that in our regular life. So that mental fitness. Sometimes Dharma practice can just feel like rest. And that's also, that's good and that's fine. So sometimes people will uh, say like, well, you know, the reason that I sit when I come home from work, it's just like, it's a moment to not have to do anything, you know, to just be able to like, breathe out, exhale, rest physically, rest mentally, uh, not have to be productive in some way. And that's also a worthy perspective, I think, that you can hold. Another perspective as we uh, continue along can be that we learn more about the rest of the Eightfold Path, and then we kind of hold our meditation practice in this broader field of Eightfold Path. So the uh, sati uh, and the elements of the samadhi are there alongside the sila, the ethical guideline training, and then the other trainings in uh, panyan, like wise view, wise intention. So in that way, uh, we can hold it as not just its own technique kind of thing, but part of a broader path. And I very much support that transition as people make it, because uh, I think if you only stick with meditation, just meditation, just meditation, uh, in some ways, like you're only taking one part of the prescription for what uh, leads to the result of the happiness that's beyond changing circumstances. So the freedom that's possible. So if you only do the meditation and don't pay attention to any of the other stuff, like how you act in your life, how you speak, you don't clarify wise view, then it's kind of like if the doctor prescribes you like eight pills, but you only take two of them. And then you don't know why it's not working. So yeah, the doctor, AKA Buddha, <laughs> has set out this like eightfold path. So uh, we got to pay attention to all of them. Take the full, take the full dosage. Okay, more perspectives. Um, another one can be some, um, manner of um, being in a laboratory. And I remember for me, this was very uh, compelling. And it's like, oh, you want to understand your mind, uh, you should learn to observe it. If you want to understand the cause of suffering, uh, you should look and see what's there. And you don't have to believe what someone else said. They might say as a hypothesis, oh, uh, craving or something uh, like wanting or something like that. But let's see, let's actually look and see in my own experience what seems to be the case. So in this case, the practice can be like uh, experiment and um, inquiry. And this is particularly if investigation is a very strong faculty for you. Uh, I think that this comes to the forefront. 
And also going on retreat can be a particular time in which it's like, oh, going into the lab. So getting rid of renouncing all the other kind of distractions in your life and just focusing on um, being present and being curious about how this mind-body system works. You might have different questions for your lab experiment, like who am I? Or um, it could be like, what is the cause of suffering? Or what is true about that which we call reality? Uh, how does this world get constructed? Uh, what is the nature of this self or this me? So all of these are kind of worthy questions. And uh, in some ways, I think it's helpful to find the question that might arise naturally as your own question and then follow that one, you know, follow that one with sincerity. So I found in my practice that sometimes if someone else has this question, even if their question sounds very uh, like deep and interesting and wise and all this stuff, it's, if it's not my question, if there's not something compelling for me about it, then it's hard to really sincerely follow up. But if it's something that really strikes at the heart as a very deep question that you have, uh, whatever that is, then like you can follow up through practice, uh, through developing understanding uh, in this way that we have these tools of uh, knowing, a different way of like knowing and then intellectual knowing. Okay, I said about the uh, stress reduction. And I think, um, interestingly, another perspective that comes along at a certain time on what is practice is, is actually stress induction. <laughs> So meaning that at a certain period, it seems like, oh, the more that I practice, the more that I see the ways in which I'm not present, or I start to see more and more uh, the ways in which uh, I actually am kidnapped by the kilesas, by uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Or I'm uh, actually more aware of the ways in which I'm not aligned, not uh, like fully together. So this is considered a good thing. And I think this is the joke of one of your founders, Larry Rosenberg, of uh, you can uh, learn a lot from insight meditation, but in the beginning, uh, you get a lot of insight, but a lot of it is bad news. <laughs> so like, a lot of the first things that we learn is like, oh, I thought I was really present, but actually I'm not. Or uh, I thought I was over that breakup or over jealousy and like, oh, seems to be still there arising. So along our path, um, one of the very helpful supports is just being super honest with oneself. So regardless of whether you're going to tell anyone else, just being as honest and courageous as, as you can be with yourself to be willing to face whatever there is uh, that shows up. Now this comes out also in uh, intensive practice more when we go through phases of seeing into the three characteristics. So seeing the nature of our seeming world that is just arising and passing away uh, rapidly. And so then as we start to notice that more and more, uh, there can be actually this stress that arises when we realize all the things that we were taking refuge in uh, are actually insubstantial, are not solid, are not worthy of refuge. Uh, like they're not gonna do it for us. So this is the stress induction part, but uh, if you come to that part uh, to encourage you that this is a well-worn part of the spiritual path. Uh, the way to practice is to keep practicing through. So the stress induction in this case is good. So it's not like a bad thing uh, that 
one becomes disillusioned or that fear even arises in relationship to what one is seeing. Uh, this is actually part of the path, important part of the path. And we have to just keep practicing even with the fear that is arising, even with the disillusionment and see those as not me, not mine, continue on. So ironically, even if you start from stress reduction, you can come to this point of stress induction, but uh, encouragement that if that's the point of the path that you're on, uh, keep going, <laughs> keep practicing. Another perspective is related to the meaning of the word uh, sati, uh, which is mindfulness, often translated as mindfulness, but also it can be translated as remembering. And remembering as in both remembering, like, you know, knowing what uh, is happening, knowing what happened, but also there's like a remembering as in re-membering, as in the members of our body, the limbs of the body. And there's a way in which in our regular life, we can become very disconnected. You know, we become disconnected from the body, we become disconnected from the emotions, we become disconnected from different aspects of our life. So you could say that another aspect of practice could be for some period of time, a remembering, like just an allowing the reconnection of all these different uh, kind of like otherwise separate parts. And uh, if I was very good at um, videos now, I would be able to put up like a TikTok or something that showed my arms separating from the body and the head separating and floating up and then like slowly coming together again. But yeah, I'm not that good at it yet, but you could imagine. <laughs> I will make that cartoon sometimes so or that uh, video. Another perspective can be one of realignment. And uh, this is one of my, my favorite translations of Dharma or Dhamma, uh, is as the truth of the way things are or as nature. And uh, from this perspective, what we're learning when we're trying to understand uh, and trying to practice is not like some esoteric thing that this guy uh, learned like 2,600 years ago, um, but actually it's something about the way things operate that he discovered and that gave us the tools to discover that we can find out for ourselves right here, right now in 21st century America or wherever it is that you are listening to this from. So it's not time bound, it's actually just like nature. And I like to uh, reflect that there's different aspects of nature that we have already discovered. So for example, um, when you are a baby or when, when there is a baby, you might have observed, um, they don't naturally already know about gravity. And you might see babies kind of experimenting with this. So they'll like take something from their high chair and they'll drop it down and like, oh, look, it fell. And then see like, oh, what happens if I do it on this side? And then, oh, also fell, right? And then, oh, what happens if I do it and I'm not looking? also falls. So then after a while you get the picture. So it's like, oh, if I want to place something uh, somewhere, if I try to place it in midair, it's going to fall. So when that happens, there's broken glass and splashed water and smoking electronics and like big mess. So it's better for me to place this on a table, on a surface. So now I live in harmony with the law of gravity, as do most of you as adults. <laughs> you don't even think about it. And it's not even that you have to have memorized the mathematical formula for gravity. Uh, you don't have to know like, oh, does someone run it? Who runs it? And uh, what are their hours? And you know, what, like, what's their name? You don't have to know any of that or even think about any of that. All you have to do is understand basically 
how this principle works and live in alignment with it. And if by chance, at some point, accidentally, like something falls off a table or something, then you can just pick it up and put it back. And you can do that minus the stress of adding on like, like, why me? Why now? Like without having to take it personally, like gravity has it in for me or something like that. Right? Like it's very not personal. It's just the way things are. So similarly, I would suggest that uh, the Dhamma is like this, is like nature, is like the truth of the way things are. Um, but we figured out some things like gravity mostly, uh, but these other aspects like anicca, anatta, dukkha, you know, we have not figured out. Paticca, uh, samupada, like dependent origination, like those, those are not ones that you just figured out already by the time you were four for most people. So we continue to learn. So we're practicing, observing, understanding, and the understanding that we want to get is on a deeper than intellectual level. So again, you don't actually even have to be super smart and know all the formulas and all that. Like you actually just have to be tuned in enough that your system gets aligned, right? So from this perspective, uh, our practice, both meditation practice and Dhamma practice, broadly speaking, is helping in this realignment. And to the extent to which we're out of alignment, uh, there is like a friction going on in which we're kind of going around trying to place things in midair, metaphorically, uh, and this friction is suffering. This friction is causing suffering. And the extent to which we can learn to live in alignment with Dhamma, and that includes actually uh, living in alignment with the uh, sila, with the ethical trainings, uh, then we suffer less and we cause less suffering for others. So their life is more easeful. Uh, we have more access to ease. Okay, so then maybe you're going along, continuing along in your practice, and you hear about something called awakening or enlightenment or something like that. Um, and then maybe you get kind of interested in that, like whatever the heck that is that's being talked about. And so you, wanna, you want some of that, you want to wake up. So if you're into that, then <laughs> you could consider your practice as, uh, in some ways, like every time you practice or each moment that you're uh, engaged in the practice uh, is like buying a lottery ticket for waking up. Because <laughs> you don't know when it's going to happen exactly. But uh, each time that you sit, uh, you're like buying the lottery ticket. It could be today. Today could be your number coming up. So keep going. Now with that, of course, uh, as you practice, you can't be like, am I there yet? Am I there yet? Am I there yet? You know, that leaning is out of alignment too. Um, but if we have some belief in our potential to awaken and our potential for freedom, um, that can be very uh, motivating for us to continue on. Now, sometimes, you know, we start with suffering and that, catap that catapults us into practice. And then at a certain point, it could be that rather than trying to get rid of something that is difficult from our life, we actually want to move towards something that is positive or wholesome. So in this case, it could be like you have encountered a teacher who is inspiring to you, uh, someone who has qualities that uh, you feel like, wow, I wish I were like that person more. I wish I understood what they understand. And then you can actually use that as inspiration to continue the practice. And I remember for me, when I was a younger person, like I did meet these teachers, um, uh, including Narayan and others, uh, 
you know, at uh, IMS and so on. I was like, oh, they know something that I want to know. And I didn't actually totally understand the relationship of sitting and walking to that understanding. But I was like, they told me that they got that way from doing this. So I'm just going to do that. <laughs> so somehow I had enough faith that even though I didn't understand the mechanics of it, like they said to do that. So I'm going to do that. And yeah, <laughs> it works. So. Okay. Now in some ways shift gears and um, after some time, it could be that the practice uh, can become more of a devotional practice. So after you practice for some time, it could be that you, you have some insight, you have start to develop some faith uh, in the Dhamma, for some people also in the Buddha or in um, oneself, all of that. Um, and then the practice can sometimes start to take on a flavor of a devotional practice. So there can be some aspect of uh, devotion that can be there, uh, whether that's manifested through um, a bowing or just a sense that there's something greater than oneself. There's something greater than me and my meditation or me and my mental fitness or me and my struggle or stress. So, so then with the devotional practice, it's something more like connecting to this uh, larger aspect. And now we're getting into kind of like mystical territory <laughs> with the descriptions, but some of you might relate to this. Um, or maybe if you have that perspective, there's a way in which um, through your practice, you're kind of like plugging into some larger power source, whether you want to call that connecting to the Dhamma or something else, but it's kind of like getting out of the limited view that you usually have. Uh, and allowing this spaciousness. Um, some, for some people, sometimes it can be feeling like, oh, I'm letting go of these problems that I otherwise wrestle with. Here's me and my problems and difficulties. Um, I remember uh, seeing somewhere a bumper sticker once and it said, um, hello, this is God. I will be handling all of your problems today. I do not need your help. Thank you. Have a nice day. <laughs> and I remember reading that and I didn't really believe in that kind of like mm, chirpy personal God, but I was like, wow, that's so nice. Like, what if that was true? If you woke up and there was a way in which you could say that about your problems, be like, oh, okay, let's let them go. And then, you know, um, but the truth is like, whether or not you believe in it, kind of that persona kind of God, like you actually can do that. Like you actually can let go of problems and, do your best with the steps that you have to take, but otherwise basically like not worry as much about things. I don't know if I explained that one so well, so we can, we have questions. You can ask more questions later. Okay, another, uh, another way of practice, and this could be also after you've practiced for a while, then you have a perspective and, uh, on uh, this cultivation, which is a metaphor that's used a lot um, both in the suttas and I think modern insight teachers talk about this. And it's often kind of like a farming metaphor that's being used. So like I just taught this meta retreat, intensive meta retreat. Uh, we did it online. <laughs> so uh, online, uh, the, you know, teachers teach and then the folks are trying to practice in their homes as you are doing now. And the encouragement is like, oh, keep practicing. So with metta, for example, it was like uh, each moment that you're cultivating, that you're saying these phrases, 
uh, you're planting a seed of metta. Or with mindfulness, it could be like, yeah, you'll keep planting these seeds of mindfulness and then, you know, they get watered and then you're kind of like trying to cultivate this row of mindfulness, of concentration, of equanimity, of all these different wholesome states. And then we're trying to not water and fertilize uh, the opposite. So like the greed, the hatred, the delusion, uh, the jealousy, the rage, you know, stuff like that. So in this farming metaphor, you're trying to like um, water, fertilize, plant seeds of everything, the wholesome stuff, and then weed out and let go of the uh, icky stuff. So that's kind of one uh, farming perspective on the four right efforts, you could say. So more to the mystical side again, then. Um, another perspective is on practice as sacred ritual. And in some ways, I think that other traditions of Buddhism that have much more like um, accoutrements, you could say, around, um, encourage this perspective more. But it's helpful for us all to try it on a little bit sometimes. Um, and with all of these perspectives, I should say, I'm not saying that one of them is better than another. I think whatever helps you in your practice to stay engaged is good. And it could be even like day to day, there's different things that are interesting to you. So from this practice, this kind of like sacred ritual practice, like something that um, inspired me about that is uh, people who are uh, practicing Muslims and who uh, pray five times a day. And there's certain set times that you are supposed to pray and face Mecca and roll out your prayer rug and then get down on your knees. And some of you here might uh, be practitioners of Islam and some of you might have seen people practicing like this, but it's actually very moving. You know, it's a, a physical act of devotion uh, going through gestures and especially when you see people doing it together. Alone, it's actually very inspiring and I, uh, some time ago when I was in my neighborhood here in San Francisco, saw someone uh, pull their car over to the side and roll out a prayer mat actually on the sidewalk uh, and get down to pray. And I was very moved by that, you know, that someone's devotion and their commitment uh, was so strong that they were willing to do that, especially in an environment of considerable Islamophobia. You know, so it was a beautiful thing. It was very inspiring. So you could consider with your practice, you know, what if five times a day, I actually aligned myself in the direction of what is most important to me, of that which is most deeply held, uh, reminded myself of that uh, and connected with that. What if I did that five times a day, regularly, day after day after day? How would my life be different? So some kind of sacred ritual like that. And uh, another perspective on, on sacred ritual is kind of like, Whatever it is that has sparked you, even just to be here on this uh, Zoom call, Dharma hall meditation session, there's like some spark there. You know, there's some spark. And of all the ways that we spend our energy during the day, it's like we want to tend that spark. You know, we want to tend it like very tenderly. So almost like there's a spark uh, that you're trying to, to light a fire from. And then...
you blow very gently, very gently you're blowing on that spark, trying to allow it to uh, light up, to catch fire. So you could consider, you know, when, you're, when you sit to practice your meditation as you breathe in and out, what if the out-breath was just taken as that? It's that blowing, on the, blowing very gently on that spark, that spark of awakening or freedom or love or whatever it is that makes sense to you, that's inspiring to you in that. It's like allowing that to, to catch fire. Okay, last one that I will share is uh, a practice of resting in not knowing. And... There's a way in which when we take the posture for however long of meditation that is reflective of the posture that the Buddha took on the night of his awakening, uh, we're developing this groundedness and we're in some ways like signaling our willingness to be fully present with whatever shows up, which is a very courageous act. So many of you probably know the story of the Buddha on his uh, night of enlightenment when he sat under the Bodhi tree and he had taken a vow you know, not to be moved until he understood, until he saw through, until the answers for all his questions that he had been carrying with him for now six, seven years got answered. And it's said that he was assailed by the armies of Mara during that time. So armies that were like things to scare him off his seat, but he sat steady. And then armies that were like there's so many other nice things you could be doing, so much beauty and good tastes and sense pleasures, but he was not knocked off his seat. And then the last one was the army of doubt. Like, who are you to be seeking awakening? Who are you to be on this quest? And, you know, he actually touched the ground in answer to that. The earth itself bears witness to my right to be present. And then he was awakened. So being able to rest with the steadiness and um, practicing resting with not knowing even. So not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what is going to come through. Uh, notice if sometimes you're practicing and you have this sense like, oh, it's really boring, like breathing in, breathing out. I know what's going to happen next. I know everything that's here in the body. I know everything about my mind. So when that happens, check yourself because you don't actually know everything. You know, that is the attitude of the kind of like arrogant mind that thinks the delusional arrogant mind that thinks like I know everything and it's really a very like static and not interesting way to engage uh, as well as not even being true you know you don't know everything so practicing resting and not knowing and it's a practice because it's difficult for us to be with not knowing so even with this um, pandemic that's going on now you know good examples of that is like there's so many unanswered questions. So like, um, what is the mechanism of contagion for this virus? Uh, when will we have a vaccine? When is it safe to go around like you usually do? When can you go to work? It's unknown, right? There's so many questions that are still not known. And the temptation, which is happening in many parts of the country, is to kind of quickly collapse or concoct a knowing but a knowing that's not actually true. It's not actually based in uh, like science and understanding. Like we don't actually know a lot of these things. So just because you want something to be done doesn't mean that it's done. You know, <laughs> just because you're sick of staying inside and sick of, sick of like uh, avoiding uh, infecting other people doesn't mean that uh, like 
the whole thing is finished. So expanding our capacity to rest with not knowing, to be comfortable with not knowing, to even have confidence with not knowing is actually a very profound aspect of practice that can be helpful for our life and uh, helpful for our spiritual path. Because in some ways, the more that we learn, the more that we go through all these perspectives and the more insight that we have, uh, you would think that it's the more that we know, but actually in some ways it can be the less that we know, you know, the less that we can point to uh, for sure in terms of facts about knowing what's gonna happen in the next moment uh, or being able to identify this as exactly specifically and certainly so. So practicing a resting and not knowing um, even when it's uncomfortable, noticing when you're starting to collapse back into like, oh, I know, I know, I know all about this. And then try to relax, try to open. Sometimes the open-handed posture is helpful. So try to rest like that, practicing that. So maybe that's enough uh, perspectives for now. Um, you know, when I had uh, started doing this, I talked about, I thought about calling it 13 ways of looking at Dharma practice in a kind of homage to this poem, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. But uh, as I went along, I came up with more than 13. So there's at least 15 there. And yeah, maybe there's even more that you hold now. So I uh, thank you for your attention to the Dhamma, to this uh, reflections on practice. May it be helpful to you in continuing in your path. So why don't we sit together now, whatever the perspective is that you have on that after hearing this talk. So connecting again with your heart, connecting with your body as you're sitting here. You can appreciate your sincerity and your own goodness and being interested in coming to Dhamma talk and continuing with Dhamma practice. We can hold in our heart all of our fellow Sangha members, community members here near and far. And we can wish well for all of us. And we can share the blessings of our practice, our sincere efforts here with all those in our families, with all of our friends, with all those in our neighborhoods, with all those who are Ill, with all those who are healing the sick, with all those who are performing functions to keep our society running, with all those who are suffering from emotional anguish, from loneliness, all those who are suffering financial hardship. with all the children, adults, elderly, 
with all the animals that live in the waters, in the ground, on the land, and in the sky. May we all be peaceful and happy. May we all be strong and healthy. May we all be safe from inner and outer harm. May we all live with ease. So thank you, all of you, for your practice. I hope this has been interesting to you to just play with what perspective you're holding your Dharma practice and maybe try something else on if it seemed interesting, uh, engaging uh, for you. But during these times, uh, we need that uh, connection to our practice to help stabilize ourselves, and that leads to help stabilizing those around us and yeah, larger, the larger world. So appreciate your continuing on like that. And I hope to see you again sometime too.